morning, and uh, if you're visiting with us, we're so glad that you're a part of our worship experience this morning, whether in person or joining us online. But if you are here this morning uh, as a guest, I would love to have an opportunity to maybe meet you out in the foyer uh, immediately following our, our services. I'll look forward to, to having a chance to meet uh, with you. And always, uh, during the course of our services, there is always for us this anticipation of how God might speak to our hearts and challenge us and stretch us in our faith, the journey and relationship with Him. And we would love to come alongside you as you're uh, in pursuit of that faith journey, maybe talk with you about what it means to be a follower of Christ, and uh, maybe if you are a follower of Christ already, what it is to be a part of a church family and to help you in the process of, of joining our church family. So we do hope that you would take the time uh, as the Spirit leads you to text FL Respond to that number 833-571-3475, and we're so grateful that you're a part of our worship experience this morning. I want us to look at uh, James chapter 2. After seven sermons in chapter 1, we're finally transitioning to chapter 2. And it, uh, I believe that what we've uh, examined in these seven messages in chapter 1 really lay a foundation, a necessary foundation for properly understanding everything that James is going to say in the remainder of his book. And uh, so because of the detail that we gave to chapter 1, we can take some liberties, take larger sections of text in the, the remainder of the book. So I want us to look at the first 13 verses of James chapter 2 this morning. So I hope that you will open your Bible, your smart device, whatever it is that you use to follow along as we talk about playing favorites this morning. It was last football season, about five games into the season perhaps, when uh, Coach McGuire walked into a team meeting and he said, I'm, I'm hearing some talk that some people are thinking that I'm treating, uh, uh, that I'm treating Muddy uh, and uh, Tyree differently than everyone else. He was known about Tyree Wilson, who was taken, I think, number seven in this year's draft, first round, seven, uh, number seven pick, and Muddy Waters, who played our star position on defense, uh, two of our best defensive players. And anyway, Coach McGuire said, I, I'm hearing some people think I treat Tyree and Muddy differently than I treat everyone else. And he quickly followed up. He said, I'm glad you've noticed that. He said, if you want to be treated like Tyree and Muddy, you practice and perform like Tyree and Muddy. He said, make no mistake about it, this is not a democracy. This is a meritocracy. And if you want to be treated like those two guys, then you practice and you perform like those two guys. So favoritism isn't always negative. Sometimes it can be motivational. Interesting, last July, July of 2022, in the Harvard, Harvard Business Review, there was an article affirming the same thing, talking about the upside of favoritism. That when favoritism is noticed in the workplace, that uh, other employees, uh, if they will take notice of these performance-based qualities that have been identified in these individuals that are giving them seemingly favorable treatment that it might motivate other employees to, to pursue uh, these, per these performance-based values. Now, unfortunately, favoritism in our culture, in our society, in our world, uh, is usually a negative thing because it is based upon discriminatory practices. Uh, there's favoritism based upon racial discrimination. Uh, favoritism based upon sexual discrimination. 
There's favoritism based upon academic discrimination. That's not that prevalent today. Because it seems that we are now a society, we've become a people, it's it's risen to the surface these past two or three years. It seems that that those that are the most educated, the the ones who are most degreed and credentialed, are in fact the ones held in greater suspicion. That now the authority of someone we found on YouTube, instead of those that are credentialed and degreed. But probably the, the... the most frequent and the most prevalent kind of favoritism in our world today is based upon socioeconomic favoritism, discrimination. And that's what James is dealing with this morning. Now, I've prefaced every message in James so far in chapter 1 that that James is a challenging book for us, and it's challenging to preach as well and to teach because James was speaking to a Messianic people, a Messianic community that were part of an impoverished, oppressed people. And their circumstances were so unique uh, from ours that it's very difficult to span the cultural gap uh, from the audience to whom he was writing Uh, to our audience today because, uh, frankly, we don't know oppression. Uh, We don't know what it is to be impoverished, as was this audience to whom James was writing. So the issues that James has been dealing with in chapter 1, their anger, their hostility, their temptation to fight back, to revolt against their oppressors, all of this is based upon socioeconomic discrimination. And James is trying to communicate to them that as a messianic community, he's talking about the communal responsibility that the people of God have as to how we respond and that because you are an impoverished people, you need to understand, as he made clear in chapter 1 and verse 9, because of your poverty, you're in a position for God to do something in your life that he cannot accomplish in the life of the rich and the affluent. So it's a mindset that needs to change in regard to who you are and how you see yourself. That in actuality, because of your impoverished position, God can do more in your life. He is able to do something more formative in your life than he could could those who are your oppressors. And so James would end chapter 1 by saying, instead of your preoccupation being your oppressors, Instead of your preoccupation being, how can you revolt against this? Let your preoccupation be pure and undefiled religion. Taking care of orphans and widows. That is, they represent all those who are marginalized in their society then and in our society now. But now then this issue comes up of favoritism. And James has some things he's, that, that he says about this with great passion that should not be missed. And while I have qualified every other sermon by saying that it's very difficult to understand that audience to whom James was writing and to make it applicable to our lives today, I need us to understand, church, that that's not the case with these 13 verses. That when you hear these, as we read through these together, You will recognize that these are things that are prevalent in our society and sadly even in our churches. So James says in regard to favoritism, he starts starts out based upon everything that he has said prior. 
Now then he talks about the contradiction of, of favoritism. That's what's troubling and disturbing for him, the inconsistency of this. And we really don't know if this is something that James has just heard about that has taken place in the context of this messianic community or if this is something that, that he has seen firsthand. But James says this, my brothers and sisters, that is, he's speaking to a community. He's concerned about our communal response when we see this or when we practice this. We need to have a community response, communal obligation. My brothers and sisters, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and is dressed in bright clothes, and a poor man in dirty clothes also comes in, and you pay special attention, privileged attention, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the bright clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions? Have you not shown favoritism? Have you not discriminated? Have you not made distinction among yourselves and become judges, hear this, become judges with evil motives. So what James has seen or heard, one or the other, what James has seen or heard is a profound contradiction. Hear what he says. This kind of favoritism that he has seen or heard about is a profound contradiction to, to God's choice of the poor in revealing himself and making himself known. While you have chosen the rich to give privileged attention to the rich at the expense of the poor. Not only is it profoundly contradictory, contradictory but it is, but is totally inconsistent with what God is already doing in your midst. These are the very people that have oppressed you. When you were getting all charged up and worked up, when you were becoming angry and bitter about the system, about your oppressors, and now then they enter into your midst and you're showing them special attention, giving them privileged seating, discriminating for them when you're acquiescing to them, when you're accommodating them. James, James cannot even imagine this taking place because it is so contradictory to everything that he has already said and what they have understood regarding what it is to being the people of God. Now this, this isn't a new teaching. James not, is not introducing something that, is, that they have never heard before. This being a messianic community that is a group of Hebrew people, uh, Jews who have, who have come to know Christ, who have come to recognize Jesus and the Messiah, for this messianic community, this idea of not showing partiality, that is, that is endemic to the Hebrew culture. It was endemic to the Hebrew scriptures. I mean, even their, even their wisdom writer, the wisdom writer would say in Proverbs 28, 21, to show partiality is not good. Moses would say in Leviticus chapter 19 in verse 15, uh, Moses would say that to show partiality is a perversion 
of justice. The justice that God is, re- is desiring to make known, the justice that God is revealing, uh, th- desiring to reveal and make known in the life of his people, to make evident in the life of his people, to show the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Listen, you're perverting that with your partiality. Of course, James has even seen this and heard this in the teachings of his brother, Jesus. You remember when Jesus was approached in Mark chapter 10? When he was approached by the sons of Zebedee, the brothers, James and John? They came to Jesus and based upon their worldly standards, their understanding of how the world works and how you get ahead according to the world and how the world does things. James and John come to Jesus and say, Lord, when, teacher, when you, when you come into your kingdom, who's going to sit at your left? Who's going to sit at your right? They're posturing for position. They're posturing for power. Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking. You have no idea what you, the question is, not are you going to sit at my right or my left, the question is, can you drink the cup from which I drink? Can you drink from the cup of sacrifice? Can you drink from the cup of suffering? Can you drink from the cup of death? That's the larger question. But what it reveals is that they were thinking from the perspective of the world. How do I posture myself and get into a position of advantage? Now, what James is doing, James is doing what our culture certainly does not like. But but James is is trying to, to shame his readers. He wants his readers to feel guilty. He wants them to be ashamed of themselves. You know, and there are some today, even clergy, they they say there's no place for shame, there's no place in guilt. There's no place for guilt. Well, all that tells me when someone wants to say and talk about scriptures and there's no place for guilt or shame, all you're telling me when you say that is that you've never read the Bible. (laughs) Shame and guilt was a part of the message of of the prophets. Shame and guilt was was just the, the natural result of being reminded that you're the people of God. The prophets were saying to to the people of God, listen, you're God's people. You're a people that have been called out. You're a people that that have been set aside. You're a people that are supposed to be unique and distinctive and look different. You operate by a different system. You process things different. You have a different worldview. But you're not doing that. Now, when you read read Scripture, you're confronted with guilt and shame There's the use of sarcasm, different literary devices that that are used to bring you to a place of reform, a place of repentance, to a place of getting back on track. Most of you here have probably seen The Chosen. There's fans and those who are not fans of of The Chosen, but I've watched it because so many people were were watching it. You know, there's different opinions on it, on, on the value of it. Some say, oh, I just soft sell Jesus. And, yeah, you know, that, that's arguable in some places, I suppose. But, but one of the things that, one of the, one of the exchanges that I really liked in that, and it captures well what I'm speaking to this morning and what James is trying to accomplish. If you've seen it, you'll remember the, the, the scene where Matthew 
is working on the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus. And Matthew has the role, he's, he's kind of a, a, what, what is called an, an amanuensis, kind of a, a secretary. He's taking the dictation, he's writing so that Jesus can think off the top of his head. And as an amanuensis, he's, he's recording all these things. But anyway, Jesus comes and asks Matthew, he says, Matthew, uh, the actor asks this actor who's playing Matthew, he says, what do you, what do you think so far? And Matthew says, well, do you want me to be honest? Jesus says, well, of course I want you to be honest. <laughs> but Matthew, as, he's, as he starts to, to appraise the Sermon on the Mount at, at, at this point, he says, Master, he says, it's a bit striking and ominous. I think it, essentially he's saying, I think it could be softened up. A little bit. He's saying it, it's a bit harsh. It's a bit extreme. And Jesus says to this actor playing Matthew, he says, Matthew, this, this is a manifesto. He said, I didn't come to be sentimental and soothing. He says, what, what did you expect me to do? To come and say to the people, listen. You have done great for the past thousand years. You're doing everything the way that God would have you to do it. You just keep it up. Is that what I came to do? That's what James is doing here. He wants the people to be reformed. He wants the people to be revolutionaries. He wants the people to be transformed by the power of God so that they do not do the things as the world does them. Because here's, here's the problem, verse 3. And you pay special attention. You pay special attention to the one who is wearing the bright clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. See, what James is desiring, and we saw this, and we talked about this back in chapter 1. And Paul even mentioned this and alluded to this. It really was central to some of Paul's writings in Romans. What, what James would desire for us to see in others is that within each and every one is the image of God. We are created in the image of God. There is within us this glory that is desiring, this glory of the image of God that is desiring to make itself known. Sin covers that up. Sin corrupts that image. And because we are to be a distinctive people, James is saying you're looking at people the wrong way. You're looking at the externals. You're looking at the appearances, the external appearances. You don't see individuals, every individual equally. You don't see everyone as one for whom Christ died. You don't see everyone uh, as someone who bears the image of God within them. Now then, you're making judgments based upon the externals, how things look on the outside. You know, Jesus had a great deal to say about that about being impressed with those that Jesus says look like they looks like they're just whitewashed sepulchers but they're rotten and stinking like corpses on the inside we do the same thing don't we 
Now, I told you, these are indicting messages that, that James is offering to us. But the beauty of that tension that we feel when we read these verses is that it calls us to stretch ourselves and, and to open ourselves up to the transforming power of God that desires to reshape our worldview, how we think and how we look, especially how we look at others. You know, I said at the 815 service, and that's an older crowd, I said to them that when I walk out of here this morning at the end of this 815 service, I'm far more likely to get more comments about me wearing a suit today than I am somebody saying, man, that's a great message today. Because we get caught up in externals. And listen, it's not just the old folks at 815. It's the young folks in here. You're young adults today, teenagers, college students. They'll say something, and this just shows the corruption of the world, how the world corrupts our views and our evaluation of others and their worth and what they have to say based upon external experiences. The young person will say, well, you know, an old guy wearing a suit hadn't got anything to say to me. Old person from my age and up says, well, you know, some guy in jeans and a t-shirt, what's he going to say to me? And we're making evaluations and judgments on the basis of external appearances. Because the culture has so influenced, because the standards of the world have so shaped our worldview, we give more weight to the messenger and how the messenger looks instead of the message and what is being said. I mean, I have no doubt 2,000 years ago, most of the people probably were more comfortable going to the, going to the temple and listening to the scribes and Pharisees and the priests in their finely adorned robes and sat more satisfied with that kind of highbrow religion, more, more, more comfortable with that than going down to the river and hearing a guy in sackcloth and ashes tell him the truth. Span the gap today, there are some people that are probably more desirous of a guy in a suit speaking heresy than a guy in jeans telling him the truth. James says in verse 4, In so doing, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Now here's what, here's what James is contending for. This is what he wants us to consider. Notice the contention of favorite, favoritism. As he continues in verse 5, he says, listen, and just go ahead and underscore that. Listen, my beloved brothers and, and sisters, this is the collective audience, all of us as a communal people. Did not God choose the poor of this world? And this is a barrage of questions. And, and grammatically, it's just one question after another. It's boom, 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 boom. And every, every, the, the appropriate response to every question is yes. But you don't even have time to think about it. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Yes, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Yes, do they not blaspheme the good name by which you have been called? Yes. What you're experiencing is the very thing that Jesus said would happen. They will blaspheme you. They will blaspheme me. And they will persecute you because of me. 
And so James is contending, why would you even fall for this trap? Why would you even accommodate and acquiesce to the rich when they are the very ones who not only oppress you, who subjugate you and keep you down, these very same ones, they blaspheme the name of Jesus. That is, they, they slander, they, they malign, they discredit, they, they, dis, they destroy. That's why he says emphatically, it's an imperative form in the Greek grammar. The listen. Listen. It's imperative. And whenever you see listen, whenever you see that declarative statement, listen. In the New Testament, when one of the biblical writers used that word listen, we need to understand in our day and time that that word listen really has, it really needs to be understood in, in three levels. To really do justice to this word listen, for it to be accomplished in our lives there are three levels where it needs to be understood the first one is attention it means pay attention pay attention to this so that it will be absorbed you've got to pay attention if it's going to be absorbed and for it to be absorbed I've got to pay careful attention I've got to be attentive to this for the word of God to be accomplished in me I've got to not just hear it, but I've got to allow it to be absorbed. I've got to allow it uh, to have its formative effect. It's got to become a part of my DNA. It's got to become a part of, of the fabric of who I am, the character of my life. If it is to become the action of my life. All three of those are involved if we are to appropriately understand, listen, from a biblical perspective. Listen. Attentive. Have a desire for it to be absorbed so it can have its transformative effect so that as I am transformed internally, it will become the action that I manifest in my life. The appropriate behaviors and response and attitudes will come forth from my life as I've been attentive, if I, if, as I've been absorbed by it. Think of it in this way. Some of you will go home and you'll sit all day in one of these 24-7 news stations. You'll listen 24-7. You'll have your, that's all your TV will be on all day. Listen to these 24-7 news outlets. And you will be so attentive to that and you will be so absorbed by that. That the result will be toxic, toxic poison corrupting attitudes you've listened to the wrong things you've absorbed it to to the point to a degree that it is now becoming who you are a toxic poisonous personality James says listen and when you rightly listen to the word of God. When you rightly listen to his instruction, as it is absorbed, then what, what is made manifest in our life is the exact opposite of all those other things that, that you are allowing to come into your brain, in your mind, in your heart, that you are absorbing, that are making you into a toxic personality, a corrupting personality. Because what James is alluding to has just the opposite 
effect. So James is concerned. That's why he is raising these questions. What impact, what effect is this, is this having? This kind of favoritism, what effect is it having on the community of faith, brothers and sisters? Because human nature is, is to point out the rich and the affluent. I can't tell you the number of times as a pastor the past 30 some odd years. Individuals, well-meaning individuals, not understanding the implications of this, individuals who will approach me after a service or call during the week and say, Pastor, I don't know if you noticed, did you see so-and-so in our services? I said, no, I, I didn't really notice so-and-so. Well, as a person of influence, you don't want to fumble the ball on this one. You may want to give him some, you may want to give them some special attention so that they'll come to our church. You know what my response always is? They will receive the same note, the same call as everyone else who visits our church. It's a trap that we so easily fall into. Where we show favoritism to those that, that are affluent in the world. That's why James says we must listen. We must beware. Because our tendency, when the world has had its influence upon us, is to pander to the affluent. To accommodate the wealthy. To acquiesce to their desires. But in so doing, all we do is perpetuate. This is why he is speaking to the community. When we allow that to happen in our midst, all we do is perpetuate the very model, the very things that are condemnable in the first place. If they are never answered, if they are never retorted, then nothing will ever change. And they continue to live their life with the expectation that they're going to be catered to. That everyone else is going to accommodate them. Because what happens when the privileged, the wealthy, are given favoritism in the church, is James, that is James' concern, is that the affluent are always separate. They are always exclusive. They are always expecting exclusive treatment. They want to be an exclusive camp they want to be an exclusive class they uh, they want to have exclusive bible studies they want to have exclusive materials they uh, they want to go to exclusive camps what stands out about the exclusive is that is that it's ex with extreme rarity that they want to be a part of the whole that they want to be a part of just the whole community because the world has so treated them with with privileged behaviors accommodated, acquiesced to, that they come to the church with the same expectation. Now, listen, when I talk about the rich, and I've said this before, when Scripture talks about the rich and when we read about the rich in Scripture, I know what happens to us. Our mind immediately goes to the Elon Musk of this world. It goes, it goes to the Bill Gates of this world. You say, well, I'm certainly not that. But our point of comparison in, in talking about in the difference between poverty and, and wealth, 
the point of comparison is not the person down the pew from us or someone you look at across the sanctuary. The point of comparison for us in Western civilization is the rest of the world. And by any standard of measure, when, when contrasted with the rest of the world, not the West, but the rest of the world, any one of us, regardless of your income level, every one of us in this room would be considered wealthy and rich. Let me frame it another way. If you've got lunch plans, if you sit here and you already know what you're going to have for lunch, whether you're going out or you're going home, if you have lunch plans, you're wealthy and rich compared to the rest of the world and certainly compared to the audience to whom James is writing. Because of our affluence, because of our wealth, as professing Christians in the West, we have to be very, very, and it's rarely accomplished, but we have to be very, very diligent, intentional, and deliberate in being humble in the face of our prosperity. Because frankly, the affluent, they don't want to be accountable to a community. They don't, they don't want to be a part of the larger whole. The affluent are used to calling their own shots. The affluent do not want to be a part of the accountability of a congregation. They do not want to come under the spiritual authority of anyone who has spiritual oversight in their lives. And so it's only with, with great intentionality and deliberateness that we can achieve a level of humility and humbleness to be a part of this life of which James is describing. Because here's the result. James' concern in this, the final thing, very quickly, is the condemnation of favoritism. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. That's Leviticus 19.18. Now listen, we also know that Jesus, that Jesus elevated the royal law because Jesus would include in that based upon his conversation with that, uh, with that one who came to him asking what is the, what is the greatest law. And, and, Jesus, and Jesus quoted first Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4 and 5, uh, what is called the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But then he added to it, that, and the second one is like that, and that's when he quoted Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your brother as yourself. But if you show partiality... You're committing sin and convicted by the law as violators, transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law, and we saw this in the book of Romans, for whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a violator of the law. That is, you may not be an adulterer, but if you've murdered, you, you violated everything. You stand guilty of all. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. We remember that from chapter 1 and verse 25 where he says, But one who has looked intently at the perfect law of the law of freedom and has continued in it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an active doer, this person will be blessed in what he 
does. Jesus says when you stare intently into the law of liberty and freedom, that is the grace of God revealed and made known in the person of Jesus Christ. When you've stared intently at that, that has a transformational impact upon your life. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom, which is the grace and mercy of God. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now listen, this love that James speaks of, this isn't some kind of touchy-feely, syrupy, emotional kind of love. But for James and the biblical writers, this kind of love that we are to manifest as the people of God that we are to show before the world is a consistency of appropriate and expected behaviors toward all that honor God and the call of his upon our life and that elevates human beings to be more than what they are, to embrace their identity as being made in the image of God. That is love. Not accommodation. Listen, church, just because someone, just because someone doesn't accommodate your narcissistic self-absorption, that doesn't mean they're unloving. In fact, to accommodate that is the most unloving thing they can do. But because we're a people who have known mercy and experienced mercy, we're to be merciful towards all equally. Pierre Monteau, the famous French conductor, he and his wife were once traveling. And late one evening on their way home, uh, in these long travels, decided to stop at a hotel. And they saw this one out in the middle of nowhere. And it saw, they saw the sign office flashing. Monteau goes in, explains to the clerk that they're just looking for a room for the night. And the clerk curtly says, I'm sorry, we don't have anything available. There was a manager apparently behind the glass in, in a clerical office and she comes out and she whispers something in this, in this young, in this young uh, front desk lady. She whispers something in her ear and the young lady turns to Monteau and does somewhat of a curtsy and apologizes and she said, I'm so sorry, sir, I didn't realize you were someone. Monteau, with a stern face, said, Madam, everyone is someone. I will not need your room for the night. And turned and walked out. The grace and the mercies of God say and affirm that everyone is someone. And that they are to be treated equally. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we are always stretched and challenged by your words. How your words are always a confrontation to the standards and the norms of this world. And Father, might we truly be a different people. Might we hold forth a different model from our world. A model that treats all equally. All being made in the image of God all being one for whom Christ died. In his name I pray, amen. 